Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, what I know, and maybe more importantly, what I don't know. We talk about the concept of how do we need to frame a mindset, maybe a bit of a growth mindset, if you will, toward making it possible to change our experience around athletics and, of course, probably other things because much of what's true athletically is true of life. And we connect this concept to, you know, the idea of looking at a long run, what is the purpose of long specific endurance, if any. Let's get into today's episode. probably not as important as what I don't know. And my job as a teacher, something I share is this concept with the students that the irony of knowledge, the essential irony of learning anything is we don't know if something is valuable until we've already learned it. And it's only at that point that we can find out if we wasted our time. But more and more I've come to believe that learning anything is not a waste of time because we don't know what new questions the failure of an understanding that we build up to, we recognize its value, we try to apply it, and then we realize that value that we thought we had finally gotten because we finally made an understanding is null. And then we have sort of eliminated something and then this is moving us towards better understandings. And we might think of this as opportunity cost of understanding where we're able to eliminate, cut back down on the sort of a value, if you will, of the things that we don't understand, the things that don't make any particular kind of sense. Um, But the things that we sort of pursue right forward. Whereas a lot of times if we don't get to the point of actual competence, you know, and full knowledge of what we're trying to recognize and make sense of, we can't actually understand whether or not it has any value. Um, And I see this, I feel all the time with things that people do, and sports and athletics is one area in which this is very pronounced, um, because of the way our sense of competence can be enforced by areas that don't have anything to do with 
knowledge um, and understanding. And so people will continue to apply something because they, you know, believe that it is true and valuable. Um, they believe it, right? They don't understand it. They believe it. Um, and, you know, belief and, and, and faith and, and stuff like that. Um, I'm not talking about this in a cultural anthropological context, but in a pragmatic, um, you know, realist perspective, like that's not valuable. Um, you know, you, for example, you hear athletes like to regurgitate this concept of belief and as sort of more and more amateurs, um, get into their own space of sharing my journey, quote unquote, um, we see more and more of kind of this like people, right. Trying to lay claim to that experience of, I too have, you know, gained the power of belief and I applied this, right. Like it's some sort of, um, magic and, you know, I don't know how, uh, anthropologically valid this thing is, but something that people like to say in popular culture is this trope that, you know, magic is just something that we ascribe to things that we don't understand. And I don't think that that's really uh, a valid interpretation of like the concept of magic in, you know, contemporary and historic cultures around the world. But I do think um, that a lot of us basically functionally uh, pursue our choices about training and, you know, strategy in, in a magical sense and that we just sort of believe that a point has value and so we pursue it. So like VO2 max, right, which relates to this belief that um, the limiting factor for performance is identifying some particular kind of a ceiling and that we need to go and we need to do practices that are associated um, with that. But a friend of mine, uh, Caleb McVeigh, sent me this interesting uh, meta-study, uh, meta-analysis, excuse me, that he came across the other day where yeah, the authors had tried to review a bunch of research and they wanted to try to say, well, what if we look at the meta-analysis, what seems to be the impact of uh, exercise over um MMSS, so maximum metabolic steady state, which in my interpretation from the article is they were equating that to uh, lactate threshold one. Now, I don't believe there's a lactate threshold one because that implies there's a lactate threshold two, but I you know, try to sometimes refer to uh, what I think of as lactate threshold as lactate threshold one, because, and that's not an endorsement of the second lactate threshold being a valid thing. Um, it's because I want to help other people who probably do feel that that's a thing or are unclear on the fact that I don't think these aren't the same. I want to help people access, better access what I'm trying to talk about. So in this meta-analysis, which, you know, I mean, I think it's limited by the limitations of the studies, you know, that the meta-analysis is based on. But the analysis of the studies said that basically, you know, the only measured impact of training over MMSS or LT1 versus um, doing training under it is its impact on you know a marginal improvement in VO2 max. So, and a lot of people get really excited um, about VO2 max, but VO2 max is not a predictor of performance. Now, we could add um, an event uh, where we go and we test people's VO2 max, and then this would be relevant. Um, but I think what's interesting is a lot of people believe in VO2 max as this explainer. And I think a lot of us want an explainer that, you know, is easy and is out there and is empirical. 
um, that can help us understand why are some people so much better than other people at this stuff when we imagine we're all training in the same way. And now if you've been, you know, a, a, a dutiful follower <laughs> of Black Hat's run, you maybe have gotten to the understanding that this idea that we're all basically doing the same thing is absolutely ludicrous and that that's a total mirage, that we are doing vastly different things from other people when we train. And um, a part of that is because of a lack of understanding of what's going on and what we should be doing. But so with VO2 max, right, if you believe in the concept of uh, VO2 max, well, then you're going to try to do these so-called VO2 max intensity workouts. Now, the vast majority of people who believe that they're doing a workout that's a VO2 max workout has never had their VO2 max tested, okay? Um, And I'm going to explain why it probably doesn't matter if you do anyway. So there's plenty of people uh, who go out and do very well and, you know, don't have, you know, 80 to 90 something, you know, VO2 maxes. Um, you know, so when they test people, there's a progressive exercise test and you're supposed to reach a point where as you continue to increase exercise intensity, um, your oxygen uptake or consumption, right? Basically your VO2 max is, is now steady. So, but you know, it's only 48% of people, um, you know, based on, uh, some writing from Steve Magnus's blog, um, only 48% of people he's saying um, have actually even exhibited that point of plateau, whereas most people are, when they stop, it, there was no plateau. It had been going up and up and up, and it had gone, the oxygen, you know, e- utilization or uptake or whatever we want to call it, had increased again at the step that they stopped at. So we let's take that, right? So that's like basically, you know, we can be simpler and we can say basically you flip a coin um, and that's about the probability that somebody's going to exhibit a VO2 max. The other thing that's interesting about that is, well, if you can get a plateau, then that means that people have to be able to continue to increase exercise intensity, right? So VO2 max can't be the quote-unquote absolute ceiling because if it was the absolute ceiling, then like you would try to increase exercise intensity and people wouldn't be able to increase that, right? So, but again, like I think that if... When we look at VO2 max, right, if we're willing to take into our mind the possibility that it's not legitimate, then these arguments are just become sort of pointless and esoteric. Um, whereas lactate, you know, threshold, everybody has a point at which an additional increased intensity will lead to a marked increase in blood lactate concentration and any further increases of intensity beyond that point, we'll see further increases in blood lactate concentration. 100% of people exhibit this. So here's something that everybody can exhibit. Um, and then VO2 max is, is something that half of people will exhibit. Um, it's also clearly overwhelmingly the case that the more blood lactate um, concentration we have, uh, the more likely we are to reach uh, time terminus of exercise much more quickly. That is 100% validated, right? Whereas it is not 100% validated that the finishing order um, of endurance or aerobically driven sports is modeled by VO2 max. And that's not, and nor is it modeled by like, oh, well, then you have the variability of tactics and racing. It's just when people straight up are out there throwing down, it's not that the athlete with the superior VO2 max is always 
you know, going to win, right? You know, I mean, on the one hand, right, on a graded exercise test, like, I guess, you know, your ability to, like, go further up the test, right, if you will, is probably going to be also indicative of further fitness, right? So that's the thing is where, you know, this VO2 max construct is probably associative, you know, um, more, you know, as much as maybe more than it is causal. And, you know, when we look at this kind of stuff, you know, this is an aspect of where we need to be willing to make changes, right? And one of those changes I propose is looking at um, endurance sports as something that really needs to be deeply understood in order to do it correctly. And it's not good enough even to have um, a coach who's really on the money with it um, and just sort of take their prescriptive, um, you know, like people who are just like, oh, yeah, just send it to my they turn on their Garmin, right? Their bike computer, for example, and then they just go out for the ride and they just mindlessly do what it says. They don't understand why, but they've just like gotten to the point in their athletic experience where I guess things have usually gone well enough for them that there's like, well, okay, I just go and I do this and then I, I move on with my day and I forget about it. And that's fine, right? People are entitled to have that approach. But if we're looking at this from the perspective of, asking the question, what's the most we can get out of ourselves, you know, then, then that's different. Um, you know, so when you do a VO2 max workout, right, you're doing that because you believe that it has value, but you don't really have a deep understanding of VO2 max. I, you know, also went through the phase, you know, at one point, you know, where I was getting into these activities and wanted to learn about them. And it was like anything I read, I just like uncritically like accepted it as true. And, you know, the fact that originally it was difficult for me to understand, I think somehow I, you know, used to take that as kind of evidence of, well, the complexity of this idea or the inaccessibility of this idea to my under level of understanding right now, you know, somehow, well, this must have validity to it. Um, and I didn't, don't think that was a conscious thing, right? But that was confirmation bias that things seem, that seem to present as, you know, scientific and studied and you know, difficult to comprehend, um, well, that must be legitimate, right? But that's idiotic. And, you know, to get better, right, like I think what we need to recognize is that we need to be willing to make changes, right? We, we need to be willing to say, okay, in aggregate, I've done a lot of VO2 max training. I've done a lot of these things. Have I really gotten better, okay? Um, and, you know, these challenges are diff different for different people because, uh, you know, our lifestyle choices, you know, um, in terms of like, you know, how do we organize our time? Do we organize our time? You know, what drives our level of interest in sport? Do we try to like keep ourselves, you know, close to socially, um, you know, environmentally with the things that drive that interest or do we like I know a lot of people I feel whom you know they're really environmentally dependent and socially dependent on certain relationships and you know certain places and then when they're in those spaces and they're willing willingly and happily engaged with those then really great things start to happen and when they get off um, off of that space then it's like everything falls apart. And it's tough to watch sometimes, right? Um, but it's just as tough to watch people like go out and torch themselves 
Um, and Strava is such an incredible window into this. Uh, but go out and watch people torch themselves in training sessions um, and get no better. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I know and I think a lot of us listening probably know that you know, there's an argument that sport's really not that important. And that's sort of one of these things that I think is used as kind of the, you know, silencing effect towards those of us who are, un, who are dissatisfied with this stuff or those of us who want to like ask these kinds of questions is it's like people don't want to listen to these kinds of questions. Uh, you know, I think there are plenty of people who've gotten the levels of success without ever asking questions themselves. And so to them, that's not important, you know, to them, they're more inclined to maybe see uh, people who are not performing at their level as asking questions as just people whining and making excuses. Um, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't think people asking questions and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on, what's limiting them. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing, you know, but I do get that, you know, sport is not at the same time, not the be all end all, but let's set aside the conversation about what the continuous pursuit of socially constructed value attainments means and whether or not trying to be a good athlete is some sort of feudal kind of, uh, indulgent post-materialism. Um, I think if we stay in the space of this is valuable, I think we can have a more interesting conversation. And, you know, frankly, I doubt that anybody listening to the podcast, um, any of you listeners are really probably on the fence about whether or not sport um, is important, right? Considering that this whole podcast is very like deep dive approach, um, you know, maybe beyond deep dive maybe this podcast is abyssal <laughs> if you will into this stuff right so I, I don't think that this is sort of a, um, a space that's you know trending among the sort of um, you know waiting pool level of interest so you know what I suggest then is that what we really need to be thinking about is we need to be thinking about finding a system or systems of validation to determine our best strategies and that trying to like ask ourselves, okay, what are the things I do? You know, and that's what I want. Here's a tangible thing you can try is you can take out a piece of paper, open up a, your notes app or a, a, you know, word document or a Google doc and just write down a list of everything that you think you do, right? Related to exercise in terms of training practices, things unrelated to that, write down the things that sort of compete with that. Can you think of things that, you know, limit or seem to make your ability to engage with what you're trying to engage with um, more challenging? Can you think of things that, you know, are, are positive and more constructive? Um, you know, I and then what we want to do is then go through this list and ask ourselves, okay, how do I know this is having the effect that I think it is? Or, right, what are those effects? So you could take these things and divide it into a red column and a blue column, right? And one column should be the column of stuff that is effective and impactful. And another column should be the column of stuff that you think is like limiting or constraining. How do you know those things that are impactful are impactful? How do you know that those things are limiting or constraining are constraining? You know, um, a lot of times professional athletes, right, will migrate and amateur athletes, too, will migrate from coach to coach. And I think that's perfectly 100 percent fine. Um, I think, it's, 
you know, not only good to be able to do that, but I think it's perfectly fine and, and normal to, to do that um, as you go. I, I mean, my point of view is that I think we should be really aspiring to get to the point of quote unquote self-coached where, you know, we may continue to choose to talk to people, but we want to be uh, a consultant, you know, and that's what I frankly enjoy doing more um, than just trying to like dictate to people, do this, do that. And they're like, oh, okay, but they don't really know why they're doing it. Um, you know, you know, talking to people, trying to like, you know, empower, empower that, right? And if then what I'm doing is actually valuable, then, you know, and, and people are genuinely value what they're trying to do. The combinations of those things mean people will continue to come back to that space of, of, you know, engagement and interaction because they recognize the value of that. But a lot of times our value determinations about training are based on, oh, like, you know, this thing is blank, right? So like, oh, VO2 max workouts, those make you fast. Okay. Well, how do you know that? Because you heard that somewhere because, you know, people post about it because you can find people on YouTube saying stuff. Well, take the time and try to start learning about that. You know, when I, if you really engaged with this podcast throughout the last year, um, I think that what, you know, or I guess maybe I'm saying more so what I hope is the case. Um, and if so, what I hope is the case is that you're starting to recognize and ask questions about a lot of this stuff that's going on um, around you in these spaces. Um, an example of this, and I would refer you to our Instagram page at Black Cats Run if you really want to be able to see this. But um, I had, you know, watched uh, some of Lionel Sanders. Uh, I guess like lactate testing type stuff. And um, I, he had done a couple videos. I think this stuff is really interesting and I think it's awesome that people are willing to share this. You know, and my perspective on this is this is one of the reasons why I think this is great, right? Is it's, I hope it, and I hope the people who share this stuff feel this way too, right? But that we're participating in, all participating in this conversation, right? And then we bring in and we apply our perspectives. And it's possible, right? It's certainly within the realm of possibility that every idea we talk about in this podcast could be totally wrong, right? But the reality is our understandings don't advance unless we're willing to ask questions. So he had talked about doing this thing where he was looking at this D-max value, which is sort of finding the point of an exponential curve that is like furthest away from a straight line drawn from, you know, the starting point to the end point of the curve. Um, and that's just a mathematical thing. There's no physiological significance to that. But, you know, he said he was going to use this to identify lactate threshold. And I think that's where, you know, that's a great example of, well, let's ask the question. Like, let's, and that's what I did. I said, what is this? And I looked it up and I said, okay, so this is not, can't be threshold because this is arbitrary, right? This is being defined. Um, I mean, it's not arbitrary in the sense of the math is not being done arbitrary. The math is calculated, but the connection between the math and physiological threshold is, is arbitrary, right? We don't identify threshold um, based on the mathematical definition of a exponential, a constant um constant relationship of I not excuse me I'm saying this five times wrong a nonlinear constant uh, relationship right which is you know an exponential growth uh, that's not how we determine that we determine threshold by saying we've turned from the point at which 
we do not accumulate lactate to the point in which we do accumulate lactate. That is a threshold because on both sides of that, there is a definably different thing actually happening. But if you look, take a look at our Instagram where I posted these, I did two things. The first thing I did is I took, well, like the three zone, the polarized thing, you know, Steven Seiler, 80-20 training, that stuff. And I said, well, what would be those interpretations, right? That's the LT1, LT2 model, or at least that's what, that's what that has essentially become um, for a lot of people. And I first went in and did that. And you see that the DMAX value doesn't identify that, right? Um, for the swim, uh, for the bike, I think there were two different interpretations. And then uh, for the run. And then for fun, for me anyway, um, I went and I said, well, this is how I would interpret this, right? This is the Black Cat's run, the BCR interpretation of this. And, you know, for my uh, interpretation, the um, lactate threshold identified by DMAX is way off. And this has two problems. Uh, one problem is that if you're training on that intensity, then you're not, it's not going to work the way that you think it is, right? And then that's going to lead to the belief that threshold is not a useful or meaningful way to train. Um, you know, okay, so that's a limiting factor, right? Like we can't determine if something is valuable if we're not actually applying or testing that, testing that thing. Um, like you have to try it and that's where we need a way to verify, right. To determine if what we're doing is effective or not. Um, I think the other uh, issue with this is we simply can't effectively improve and develop our strategy. Um, if we don't understand the nature of what we're really trying to do or achieve. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the DMAX thing is totally bogus, um, but I don't think it's any more different than the fact that in general people don't recognize what the lactate threshold curve is really about. And I just think that there's a really intense bias, uh, confirmation bias, that we all want to feel like we're in better shape than we are. I mean, I tried for a while training, you know, at a lactate level that was, you know, m maybe m for most people marginally over my threshold. Um you know, not even a millimole over. And, you know, I went along and then I totally, at a certain point, I just absolutely fell apart. Uh, you know, I, and I crashed and burned for like basically six to eight weeks, um, you know, and it was, and I've, when you have that kind of an experience, okay, you have to be willing to take that information in. And so, you know, for me, what I've tried to take in is, okay, like clearly if I'm not sustaining my training and I'm not improving, it's not working. Um, and if I'm getting fatigued, then the issue can't be that I'm not training hard enough, which is what a lot of us think, right? But if you think that dead legs or sore legs, if you think that's a sign that you're training well, okay, then you're going to be moved in that direction. But how do we know that's good? If you think that um, your fitness can accumulate quickly at a certain amount in a certain amount of time, then your inclination, your sense of when are you going to train in proximity relative to something is going to be limited by by that understanding. If you think that um, you just train for X amount of time and you build up to a peak and then you plateau, then you're going to be concerned about ramping up your training too quickly. But that is probably a consequence of, um, you know, this the silliness of like, you know, what's actually going on there is you're just training unsustainably, right? And after 
you know, two to three months, you're just going to fall off the cliff physically, mentally, or both. Right. And that's, but then if you believe that's the right way to train, you're going to rationalize that and you're going to try to like time it differently. But the actual way to get good at this stuff is to train all the right way all of the time and not to take breaks and not to be detraining um, and doing that. And the long, the, the further out in advance you start working on this stuff, um, the better. And if people have, you know, questions about, you know, how do you do that? How do you sustain, you know, a steady, you know, march of progress um, in your training approach, um, you know, reach out to us and send us a message on Instagram. If there's interest for that, we can do an episode where we talk, you know, about some, you know, very actionable things that people can do to switch to and build and build into that kind of approach. But like consistency over time, but you got to be consistent in doing it in the manner that's effective, you know, and again, and that's why I say we have to identify the practices of things we do in training, but also, you know, aspects that influence how we engage in training, right? If you have a motivation issue, um, which that word is used in a lot of stupid ways right now, but if we say motivation is just that, um, well, here's an example. So I went and got a haircut on Saturday and at like nine. And I know for me, if I get up in the morning and I don't immediately work out, uh, then it becomes very difficult for me to, to want to go and do that. I don't know exactly why. There's no good reason for that to be the case. You know, I think maybe I just start getting into doing other things and then I'm engaged in those things and I don't want to have to stop. And so, you know, it took me until the afternoon to go out and do my, my steady state run. Um, which was fine and I enjoyed it and I felt great and I felt so much better after doing it. Um, but like, you know, that recognizing that kind of a pattern, but I was like, okay, like, you know, I don't really want to go later in the afternoon and get, you know, the haircut. Right. But it can be little things, things like that, that we think are little do have a big disruptive, um, effect. And if we want to get to the point where we have good strategies, I think the essential quality is to start by reviewing what we already know or think we already know. In the last episode that we did, um, we talked about some examples of uh, some of the 30-mile long runs that I've done and some of the experiences with that. And I think, you know, those kinds of conversations, that kind of looking at, um, you know, even your own anecdotal experiences with training, but then trying to relate that to, like, what do we know? What do we not know what do we need to know more of um, is really Im- important, right? Because if we take this idea of the long run, right, for runners or right the sport specific equivalent for other aerobic endurance sport endurance sport disciplines, um, you know, our concept of that right is set on a, a, a group of norms, right, and we believe it's valuable, so we do it, and we hear people do it on Sunday, so we do it on Sunday. Um, but the implementation and its benefit, right, are directly related to each other. And then, you know, tying that together is a, like, what is this actually, like, doing, right? What is it that we're doing here? And if we don't really understand what's happening as we're doing it, then our ability to know that we're doing it, even if we are maybe doing it optimally, we don't know that, right, unless we know what we're doing, Um, That this like anti-knowing thing, you know, and this idea of, I mean, for goodness sake, Nike has a whole 
multi-billion dollar marketing scheme based on the just do it thing, right? Like that's a huge part of um, sports culture and sporting culture and, you know, American go-get-it-ness, whatever obnoxious stuff you want to think about down that rabbit hole. Um, But I really think that asking questions is important, you know, and challenging ourselves is important, you know, and having a social space or a social social community with people in these sports where you challenge and are challenged is important, you know, but that also can feel very threatening to people. And I, I understand that, but there's the value for that is huge. And I think we have to be willing to challenge ourselves first, you know, challenge ourselves to be willing to be challenged, challenge ourselves to be willing to go and have people, you know, ask questions. I am continually, you know, honestly amazed. I always, you know, feel that like, well, there's not going to be anything to talk about on this podcast anymore. And then there's just new ideas and new ideas because the experience of this stuff is so vast. And I really think that our understanding of sports, um, you know, performance, right. You know, in terms of not just sports science, but all aspects that go into that, I feel like it's just basically infantile, you know, we're so low down the path of understanding that, you know, we're never going to run out of things to consider or discuss. Yeah. There's a, I don't remember the exact quote, but there's a comment from, uh, Peter Coe. Um, and I used to be, you know, pretty dismissive of the Peter Coe subco thing because I felt that it was just, I saw it through this lens of, okay, well, this is just this whole thing to say that you don't need to train very much. And I felt, and I, and this is true, I think, um, evidently true, uh, through all of the, you know, information that's out there. Um, you know, I felt that you needed to be able to train a lot and I felt that I was being screwed. Um, because I kept going to these environments where the norm was to like not train very much, you know, and or hand and foot with that is to then work out extremely hard and extremely intensively, you know, and I felt I never really got the opportunity to actually get in shape. You know, I think my leg muscles were very strong, but I didn't, it was irrelevant. Um, you know, and I see people who have more aerobic uh, fitness than me, you know, then be like, oh, well, I'm going to do these strength things. And I, my attitude is kind of like, there's no point to that. And I did a whole episode, uh, I think it was called The Speed Merchant, where I talked about, you know, where I think the speed actually comes from and how that's actually developed. So I'm not going to go into that here. But, you know, people, right, again, they start to get to the point where they go outside of understanding and they just say, oh, you do this thing, this is a fast thing. I want to be fast, so I'm going to start doing this fast thing. And they're not really asking questions. But, um, you know, the Peter Coe thing, you know, he had some comment um, where he basically something effective, like, don't do stuff unless you know why you're doing it. And that used to aggravate me because I thought it was this whole idea of like, well, you know, don't do, you know, if you're not, you know, don't just go out for a run because that's not specific, right? You have to do these specific workouts. Everything has to be workouts. And it's like, well, I'm not getting any better doing these workouts. So I think this is a bunch of bullshit. Um, and you know, maybe that's actually what he meant, right? Maybe that really was the case. Um, but I've now started to think about that differently and maybe I should give him more credit. Maybe, uh, he meant something a little bit more expansive, which is just that the idea that if we don't understand why we're trying to do something, in other words, we don't understand what we think we're going to accomplish or get out of doing something then there's a very good chance that we're just wasting our time and we're doing something incorrectly. Like the idea of long run, go for a long run. There's so many different ways 
that people will do that. The idea of go out and run these quote-unquote VO2 max intervals. There's so many different ways that people will do that. I did these episodes where we talked red, light, red, yellow, green. We talked about the idea that different athletes are, you know, we learn formatively what exercise means in terms of perceived exertion experiences like rec sports, right? Club sports, you know, school sports, gym class, right? And, you know, there's this whitewashing effect that goes on that you go out and you do some conditioning and the coach says, that's good, but everybody was not doing the same level of exertion, right? And so there's no conversations about how it should feel. And this is something I've always tried to do with people that I've coached. And the people that I've been able to work with successfully are people who they like having those conversations. And the people who just like, you know, like it's like trying to catch sunlight in a bottle, you know, these people who just will not, they're so evasive. Um, and you just, at a certain point, you just give up. It's like you, they don't even know that there's value to be had here, right? And they're just everything they're doing to just get out of it and not get out of having these conversations. And it's like, I mean, like, fine, you don't have to if you don't want to, right? You, but, you know, they don't see the value there. They're not willing to try to hear a reason as to why it might be valuable. And, you know, those, those, and then there are people who are like that who are going to be good at this stuff. And then they, we look to those people in some cases worshipfully, like, oh, tell us your secrets. What is the magic? And there is, you know, that's the whole problem. There is no magic to this stuff. The secret is there is no secret. Um, you know, and I think a great example of this is the paradigm shift that I've had over the last, you know, maybe a little more than a year, and let's say 14 months in particular, um, around lactate. And for me, this really began with, you know, seeing some stuff on YouTube with the Norwegian triathlon guys, Gustav and Christian. And then, you know, I decided, you know, by pure happenstance, I guess maybe I'll watch this Kona race and see what happens. And I was really impressed, as I think, to be fair, like everybody was, um, with those two guys and, you know, how they did in that race. And so for me, this is like, well, I'm, I'm curious to know about this, right? This idea of using this lactate stuff sounds, sounds very different. You know, how are they using this, right? And that's just my idea of, you know, natural curiosity, I guess, right? And I think wanting to figure that out um, is something that, you know, can be is very driving and motivating for me at times. I would say, if I'm being reflective, that probably 90 to 95% of these understandings I didn't have 14 months ago. You know, I think if I'm being honest, I would say there are things that I've done in in coaching, um, you know, and I've talked, you know, very freely about you know my inability personally to try to be mindful and apply these same pearls of wisdom to myself because my anxiety of I'm not uh, I'm not doing enough, I'm not training hard enough to get better is very deeply rooted, um, but that it's easy for me to sort of put limitations or see the value of limitations, you know, when talking to other people or when coaching other people. But, you know, so, you know, I think there are things that I've done in those contexts that have been very good or very similar, but I also see now how, wow, I should have taken that further, and I probably was ascribing a potential value to this thing that maybe wasn't really there. Um, And... I think it's like actually very confidence inducing. It's just absolutely awesome to continue to find that you can, you know, learn things um, 
because it means that like the answers to these to these training questions, right, to these questions of performance, if you will, are are really still out there. And it's why I, I you know, enjoy taking the time to record this podcast because there's always things to I think to make better sense of. So this is a review of what I feel I know um, about lactate now. Um, and I tried to sort of package all the stuff that has been explored, you know, over the course of, you know, the the first 55, 60 hours or so of this podcast into one um, sort of narrative. So lactate is a source of energy. When we are efficient, lactate is low. When we are if, uh, efficient and increase work, lactate remains low. When we are inefficient, lactate is high. And the more inefficient we are, the higher the lactate is. Now, energy is finite, right? Entropy, right, is a thing. Like We cannot infinite, we are not a perpetual motion machine. Um, so because energy is finite, limit, all resources are limited, um, we take efficiency to mean that we can go for a long time and we take inefficiency to mean we can go for a short time if efficiency um, sees low lactate um, until right lactate increases in concentration. Then lactate production is increasing across uh, in exercise intensity. So what I mean by this is Every time we increase the amount of work that we do, the metabolite that the body is increasing in availability is lactate. And we know from George Brooks and lactate shuttle hypothesis that lactate is being produced and moved, right? And it's being made available. And that the reason um, like that this is happening, right, um, is that we're consuming it and then we can't see it accumulate until we get to the point where we're running out of the ability to consume it. Um, because if lactate was something that was a byproduct, then it should just constantly be accumulating across exercise. Now, one of the issues is a lot of the people who go to test lactate and do a threshold test are not willing, to, like it's insane to me. People will not start like at a lower intensity, right? Because we're so needful to feel that we're better than we are, right? And this confirmation bias of, oh, well, maybe my lactate threshold is two or two and a half or three. Well, like for Marius Backen, right? He was shifting from this sort of four millimole paradigm down to something more moderate, right? So, Competition is competition. It is comparative. It is relative, right? So he moved to a more optimal strategy relative to the intensity a lot of other people were working at. But that doesn't mean that he shouldn't have gone further in moderating that intensity. So like the body, right, is producing this as a benefit to us, right? And the body would not produce more of an energy source Precisely at the point where it cannot utilize it. So if lactate's a metabolite, oh yeah, well let's just sort of um, only start producing this at the point at which we can't make use of it anymore. That doesn't make any sense. 
Okay, when we understand that lactate is a source of energy. So therefore, lactate is produced uh, proportionally to work demand, not proportional to capacity for utilization. And I think that probably makes sense from the perspective of evolutionary biology that a you know organism that's more likely to survive is being going to be an organism that like makes energy available. And then it's also the case that when it's available, when you reduce exercise intensity, it may also be more efficient. And my paradigm is that like efficiency needs to be a central explainer for anything the body does because more efficient organisms are going to be naturally selected for. And evolution has been going on for four billion years. That is a mind-numbingly large number of years, okay? That's going to lead to some pretty efficient organisms, right, evolving over time, okay? And, you know, humans are like a very, like, complex organism, right? We look at the capacity of our cognitive function, right? It, you know, behooves us to be energy efficient in particular. Um, And so, like, that's why we're producing lactate in that manner, right? I think is that then, because then when we reduce exercise intensity, the blood lactate goes down and people have measured that um, if you come to a stop, your blood lactate level declines more slowly than if you jog very easily, why? Because when you come to a complete stop, there's not a demand for that lactate that has accumulated, right? But if you jog very slowly, now you're doing that at a level where you're not exceeding the capacity of the mitochondrial reticulum, so now you're just going to consume the lactate that's already there, right? And it doesn't come down as fast when you're standing there because there's not as much of a need to use it as a metabolite. Seeing like all of this stuff makes sense, right? All these relationships can be understood when we recognize that it's it's a metabolite. It's an energy source. Um, you know, in other words, right, the mitochondrial reticulum's epigenetic uh, state, its epigenetic capacity uh, does not determine the amount of lactate produced. So it's not like, oh, you have a bigger mitochondrial reticulum, so to speak, then you have more lactate being produced. I don't, I don't think that makes sense. And so since lactate accumulation occurs after crossing from a state of efficiency, which is, you know, making use of available energy to inefficiency, which is non-use of that available energy, then there can't be any secondary lactate threshold. So there's no second threshold. If there was a second lactate threshold, there should be a second point in which something changes. But that doesn't make any sense, right? There can only be one, you know, factor to this based on what we actually know, which is that, like, there's a point at which the lactate accumulates, because your body is producing it proportional to the work you're demanding it to do, but that you've exceeded the capacity, you know, to do that, right? You know, and maybe it's also the case that, um, you know, the other muscle twi- fibers, so fat, so-called fast twitch fibers, um, you know, when those are being engaged, they just don't have the same uh, mitochondrial infrastructure, right? So maybe that's a factor to consider too that we'll come back to. Um, you know, and I think after the lactate threshold is passed, uh, lactate is accumulating, what we say exponentially, right? That's sort of what those curves look like, although there is no one singular every single time. This is the curve. This is the exact function of that curve. But, you know, all those curves, if we describe them as exponential, remember that an exponential function is a nonlinear constant relationship, so saying the line is steep here is a kind of optical illusion. So it's a fallacy 
to think that the significance of lactate threshold um, is relative to a second lactate threshold because it doesn't exist. And if you're going to use that as a concept, then you're going to reach erroneous conclusions about why you are in shape, why you're not in shape, about how you should or shouldn't be training, right? What's your limiter, right? You're going to redistribute your concept of time and intensity in ways that are ineffective. When we think about changes in lactate, we have to rationalize it against the following principles. Number one, when lactate is lower, it correlates to longer time till failure. Lower lactate means that you're more efficient, therefore, right? And greater efficiency means that it is greater level of ease. So lactate changes are reflecting metabolic changes, right? Um, and a lactate threshold change has to be some sort of a change in a, in a kind of a metabolic capacity sense, then at least to some degree. And that number five, right, um, evolution tells us the body will always try to seek the most efficient means. So we need to be interpreting this stuff from the perspective of efficiency instead of being like, wow, look at this crazy waste product. Okay. Um, organisms do not survive if they just take uh, and just produce massive amounts of waste. That's just not an efficient, efficient organism that has a high probability of surviving. So, the development of the mitochondrial um, reticulum is key because metabolic capacity to use more lactate is determined by the mitochondrial reticulum and the developments of the mitochondrial reticulum, right, in terms of developing into a more substantial um, system is an epigenetic response to sub-threshold utilization of muscle fibers, okay? And I think a big part of that is the case that when we work way over threshold, then we're getting so tired so quickly that we just aren't really inducing the kind of uh, systemic um, homeostatic buzz. We aren't really getting in that zone of proximal uh, epigenetic response, right? It's just not enough of a stress for the body to want to then waste its energy. Oh, we exercised and we breathed hard for 90 seconds, eight times. That's not going to make the body be like, oh, crap, let's just go produce a bunch of mitochondria. That would, that's super inefficient. There's no uh, incentive for the body to waste, to waste its energy in that way. Okay, right? And again, that's where that principle of interpreting through the lens of efficiency is, I think, really important. So if we take this to the long run, right? Uh, this is a buddy of mine, Michael Watson, you know, had commented to me about, well, what if you think about this idea that there's some research that says that you're fatiguing these slow twitch fibers, which are more quote unquote aerobic, um, and then you're going to these fast twitch fibers. So if we think about it in this way, that then led to me to this additional possibility when we think about what is the purpose of the long run or the sport specific equivalent of the long run. In the long run, right, the slow twitch fibers are getting fatigued first, probably because those are the more efficient fibers. And, right, the body is always going to seek that point of maximum efficiency when doing work. And then maybe after the slow twitch fibers are fatigued, the body is going to use less efficient fibers, the fast twitch. This means that the fast twitch fibers are now experiencing an epigenetic stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis, creating more mitochondria, right? Expanding, developing the mitochondrial reticulum in the cells of those muscle fibers. And this turn point of a, of a switching from efficiency to less efficiency, right? Um, 
right, going from the slow twitch fibers more efficient to the fast twitch less aerobically efficient. I wonder, and I haven't tested this, but I wonder um, if you did a, a long run or a long specific endur- continuous endurance session at the a constant power, right, constant watts, constant work rate, um, constant velocity is not always great because to maintain a constant velocity, unless it's a, uh, the conditions are exactly identical, you're going to have variable work rate. But does there come a point where you can identify at what point the fast twitch fibers are starting to become very present because now there's a step up in lactate? Not that it necessarily would continue to accumulate, but will you now exhibit a elevated uh, lactate level because you're using muscle fibers with less mitochondria, which means that your ability to consume available lactate is going to change. Does that mean that when we get to that point and we're training those uh, fast twitch fibers that we need to slow down? I mean, certainly legs getting very heavy you know, the impetus to slow down is really big on long runs. A lot of people hammer their long runs or their long rides. Uh, that's not probably training. That's just performing. Um, that's showing off on Strava. Uh, you know, I would say keep those easy, and then maybe you need to even actually be going easier. Uh, and uh, Michael Watson had also pointed out that, like, well, would that drive in correlation with on these these big four- to five-hour runs that I was doing um, or that I've done in the past, that the reason why on a lot of those the heart rate started to go up and up and up, does that reflect that switch, right? So could is there a break point um, of heart rate, right, at the point in which the heart rate starts to climb or jump up, right? Could we also use that to infer that there's a point? And if that's the case, right, could we then go out in the field and try to test you know, lactate at around that point, right? And sort of see what's happening um, with the, you know, lactate metabolism um, as you're changing your capacity, right? As represented by, you know, your increasing heart rate, your increased cardiac stress. So, you know, um, if that's true, right? Does this mean that uh, these mitochondrial adaptations in the fast twitch fibers are going to increase the body's ability to utilize lactate at higher intensities? Okay, so that means that if you're struggling to run fast over short distances and you feel like you're not comfortable doing races shorter than, say, maybe 3,000 meters um, for runners, right? Or, you know, really short races in the pool. Um, I know for cyclists, right, we're usually just sort of sort of out of that. But if you think uh, within cycling, right, if you struggle with really short uh, climbs and stuff like that, right, is that because you actually lack mitochondrial capacity, right, that you can't, those fast twitch fibers can't take as much advantage of the available energy because they don't have as much mitochondria. And if you can improve the mitochondria in those fast twitch muscle fibers, are you going to feel more comfortable, more efficient in those faster races? So if that's true, then long runs or long specific sessions will will directly lead to greater time to failure in short distances, uh, high intensity performances because of the uh, improvement in mitochondrial uh, capacity um, in those fast twitch fibers. So therefore, long runs make you faster over short distances or more powerful over short durations, despite the fact um, that you know, you're imagined to be super threshold. And therefore, as a lot of people then say, you're using other energy systems beyond aerobic metabolism. Now, one way we could measure this is we could say, well, do you exhibit, um, you know, less blood lactate accumulation running the 1500 meters, 
say, right? Or doing short a short quote unquote in cycling. I like to say explosive climb, but like explosive isn't really the right word, but just a short climb that's maybe, you know, less, you know, less than 10 minutes or maybe even less than five minutes, right? Do you accumulate, do you, sorry, you exhibit a lesser accumulation of blood lactate. If that's true, should we interpret that to mean that we're changing our efficiency, right, of those fast twitch fibers? Um, and, you know, fatigue, though, from long endurance workouts does greatly reduce speed and performance until full recovery from the workout has occurred. And this has created the misconception that long runs, long endurance workouts reduce speed and make people slow. But in point of fact, a fatigue state is what makes people slow, regardless of how the fatigue is reached. There's no such thing as like good fatigue or performance enhancing fatigue. And I know there are some ideas out there about like cycling, doing openers. If you're a cyclist, for Pete's sake, don't do openers ever again. It is absolutely pointless. Okay. It is dumb. You're literally, oh, let me go out and make my muscles tired. Okay. If you have, it doesn't make any sense, but that's because you're not asking the question, why am I doing this? What is the point? There is no freaking point to it. You are wasting your time, literally wasting your time and energy doing that. Okay. That is not how we uh, improve our ability to be able to go fast, um, to work intensively, um, you know, in 24 hours time or whatever. Even worse is when people go out and, oh, let me do some micro intervals in the morning before my race. I mean, the fact that you can, uh, you know, just shows. It's like that Arthur Lydiard story about the, I can't remember his name, but the Frenchman who, you know, s- slept in um, and had to rush to the track and had no time to do his usual 40 to 50 minute warm up routine and just did a couple strides and went out and set the world record in the 1500. And his thought process, supposedly, the anecdote goes, uh, supposedly was like, wow, imagine what I could have done if I'd done my usual warm up. So then he made sure to always do his usual warm up and he never ran that fast again. Okay, make of that what you will, but I think that that proves, uh, you know, sort of uh, references in support of what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, i.e., don't do fatiguing training close to performances where you want to be able to perform. You know, short, high intensity workouts also fatigue uh, the fast twitch fibers, right? Let, to be clear, right? If you're using them, they'll get tired eventually if you do enough. Um, but I think those workouts are just too short in duration and too intensive and demand to lead to the good the good epigenetic stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis in those fibers. So I also wonder if then high volumes of training cumulatively fatigue slow twitch fibers as you go, so that there's a cumulative fatiguing effect, so that just in general, um, fast twitch get more of a mitochondrial stimulus. And if that's the case, maybe this isn't specific to doing the super big, you know, defined long run or long session. I think that some of the benefit of doing the long run or the long uh, session has to do with uh, like aspects of muscular fatigue. And that's a different issue that I'm not trying to go into on this uh, episode, but there's a lot of questions to be asked there for sure. So, right, that high volume of training, right? Maybe that's another way to get the fast twitch fibers, you know, tapped into getting more of a mitochondrial stimulus. And is that why that maybe like going from, 55-minute runs to 75-minute runs could lead to a huge jump in performance, right? And just keeping those runs, you know, very appropriately moderate, moderate, very much sub-threshold. Um, whereas I think for a lot of us with our running, all we've really ever done is basically gone out and done a bunch of threshold intensity 
uh, training or higher on the majority of our runs. And that's one of the things that I've come to recognize is I was always basically trying to get in the groove of training at a level that was over uh, my threshold. And so we can then ask the question, do we need a long run to always achieve the aerobic adaptation for the fast twitch that I'm hypothesizing here? How else can we get the fast twitch to work um, below their respective lactate threshold? Because we're also seeing like usually to get those muscle fibers going, we have to run faster or harder over that, right? So there's this weird endurance effect where now we're using these fibers um, at their own sort of sub um, threshold intensity in a way that it's maybe we just can't really access unless the slow twitch fibers um, have been sufficiently fatigued such that we call these to engage in this aerobic way. Um, and, you know, I also think we know it's true that if oxygen was uh, the limiter for all of this stuff, then, uh, you know, we would be specifically better. Um, sorry, I'm saying this incorrectly. We would not be specifically better at the sports we specifically practice. We would be proportionally good at any physical movement done aerobically if this was all about oxygen and all about VO2 max. And this is evidently not true. I don't even think this is a question um, that that clearly does not happen in practice, right? But that goes, I think, further to the point of like, how is like the sort of um, aerobic capacity of sports-specific muscles um, and sports-specific movement, if you want to think of it in a like, uh, synaptic potentiation thing, um, how does that really function? You know, and elite athletes, uh, some people sometimes talk about this idea of elite athletes having their LT1 closer to an LT2. Now, I think this is bogus, as you know, because LT2, as far as I'm concerned, does not exist. You can listen to our most popular episode, Behind the Curtain, if you want to hear more on, you know, my breakdown of why that's fake, Right. So first of all, the observation that elite athletes have an LT closer to LT2 makes no sense because LT2 doesn't exist, okay? Uh, I can't be best friends with the Easter Bunny because the Easter Bunny's not real, okay? That's why it's significant to know if something is or isn't real, okay? Um, it's a big limiter in our understanding if we don't establish that the Easter Bunny is not a myth. Uh you know, and in this case, um, the LT2 would imply that aerobic development is actually ultimately limited by a secondary threshold, right? And then you can only get up, your LT2 can only be so much of a percentage of LT, uh, sorry, your LT1 can only be so much of a percentage of LT2. So it's like, ha ha, now you have to do all the high intensity stuff that, you know, you suck at and makes you injured and never made you fast. And so, hey, I guess you're just slow because you're slow. Um, and I just, it's not true. It's not true. Um, so, you know, or people can say, you know, it's VO2 max, but again, like it can't be VO2 max because I don't think VO2 max is really real, right? Only 48% of people exhibit a VO2 max, a hundred percent of people exhibit a lactate threshold one. And there's like nothing that people are specifically exhibiting or is definable. Now I know people have tried to like do this maximum lactate steady state thing, but like, that's dumb. <laughs> you know, like you're just taking like, yes, you know, the relationship doesn't suggest that like, okay, it, once you cross your threshold, like 
if you then run that fixed intensity over threshold, your lactate will accumulate across that intensity. If you run below threshold, you're going to reach some point where your lactate is probably going to be higher than that. We've outlined a hypothesis as to why that could be the case. I'm not saying it's the best hypothesis, but it's something that's worth considering, I believe, right? So 100% of people, though, exhibit this lactate threshold effect. Um, and, you know, but people trying to use these MLSS nonsense, I, I just don't subscribe to that either. Um, because it obviously makes sense that you can hold a steady lactate for a while at intensities over lactate threshold. There's nothing in you know, lactate threshold that I think suggests or implies that that would not be the case. So I don't think you can prove, you're not proving the existence of some, you know, secondary thresh, lactate threshold by MLSS. I think that's just, you're just studying the fact that, oh yes, when people, you know, run over lactate threshold, but sub-maximally their lactate will not constantly accumulate. Okay. Wow. That doesn't mean there's a secondary threshold. You know, anyway, though, uh, does this mean, right, um, that what does it mean, right, this idea, right, what are people actually seeing when they think they're seeing LT1 being closer to LT2 in elite athletes? And this is where, right, when we ask the right questions, we get potentially different insight. So does this mean that elite athletes more rapidly develop a blood lactate concentration after they cross the threshold? Assume the above is true, then does that mean that elite athletes have greater uh, metabolic potentiation? Since lactate scales proportional to work, that potentiation wouldn't be seen until after a lactate threshold is crossed. So can we infer that they have um, more power and they're stronger than us because they just have a better source of power? Uh, that would mean that elite athletes are better because they are more efficient and you know, it certainly makes sense that elite athletes are probably more efficient. Or does this observation of LT1 proximity to this imaginary LT2 uh, mean that elite athletes have a much smaller gap between their point of accumulation and their point of terminal work? Um, you know, the intensity which they cannot continue to work harder. So meaning that like, well, if their lactate threshold is one millimole, then they're going to get to a point where they're going to be having like four millimole and then they're going to be toast, right? Whereas for people um, like, well, here's an example. So you can watch, you know, Lionel Sanders uh, treadmill test for his running test. Um, and, I, and I have the graphs of that on uh, the Instagram page. Um, you can take a look at that, right? And he's running a 430 pace and he's like three to four millimole. I think it was three point something millimoles of lactate. And, you know, that's probably because he's so close to his potential aerobic uh, capacity as an athlete that he's running 430 pace and he has, you know, really using the lactate to do that, right? So he's able to do that, you know, very much, quote unquote, um, aerobically, even though that is over, over threshold. Uh, it doesn't mean that he should be able to run 430 pace for, you know, 26 miles, but you know, I could see an argument that somebody like like Lionel Sanders could, over time, get to run in 4:30 pace. You know, for you know, you know, 8k to 10k, something like that. Right? Seems you know maybe more reasonable for somebody at that level to get to that point. He doesn't do those events, right? So obviously, he's not just going to go step off, step out of the car, and just you know run 4:30 pace for five miles. Okay, 
and that would probably still be pretty challenging. <laughs> so, but if this is true, then does this mean that um, elite athletes with very high, or any athlete really, that still exhibit, like get to a very high level of blood lactate accumulation if they keep taking steps beyond their threshold? Is that actually a marker of capacity for potential aerobic improvement? Um, you know, a friend of mine, you know, will get up to like 12 millimoles of lactate and, you know, could probably go further. And I think this is somebody who has tremendous capacity to improve aerobically. So does the high level of blood lactate mean that, hey, look at all of this metabolic energy that you aren't able to take advantage of. This is why you aren't going as fast, right? You need to get to the point where you can take advantage of that. And the training that gets that mitochondrial adaptation, does that does that do that? Um, you know, so lactate values over threshold, um, that doesn't mean there's this glycolytic power thing. It doesn't mean you're more explosive. It doesn't mean you have a faster 400 because you can have a lot of lactate sitting in your body and not being used. <laughs> a metabolite that you're not consuming is not the explanation for performance. That is idiotic. Okay. There's another explanation for performance. What does make sense is that, hey, you know what? You're going really intensively for 400 meters or whatever if you know two minutes one minute 30 seconds three minutes you're going really intensively and your body is pushing out lactate right to proportional to the work demand right and then it's there and it's available um maybe that is good right maybe that helps people like recover right that idea of like having that lactate available in the blood so that when you bring it back down you can access that. Maybe that's like a good thing, right? Because then the body doesn't have to produce as much lactate. I don't know. I'm just kind of like spec totally speculating. These aren't even, that was not like a pre-planned thought um, right there. Um, who knows? I certainly don't. Um, but these example, right? You got to be open to asking questions as they come up. So, but that idea of like glycolytic power, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because the lactate curve um, isn't like a sign of like glycolytic power. It's just the fact that there's this curve and this growth is just measure of your declining efficiency. Okay. Um, like the curve as a curve doesn't have any meaning, right? Um, it's like, you know, in cycling, people like to look at power curves and be like, oh, the shape of this power curve, my power curve doesn't mean diddly squat, you know? Because it's just a reflection of what kind of riding I've been doing, you know. And ironically, if I go out and try to make a really strong power curve, I'm actually probably going to go out and stink it up anytime I race. Because if you're doing that, you're probably not training that well, you know. And But people like to try to look for, you know, meaning under these, you know, rocks where there really, I don't think necessarily always is something. I don't think it's bad to ask the questions, Right. But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take these understandings and say, OK, what else can we think about here? You know, I think the only important aspect of the graph of lactate is the threshold, right, or the onset of blood lactate accumulation. And I think that when we take this knowledge, right, and then we start trying to use this as a leverage for understanding and the different things that we're doing, um, I think we have significant potential to start to reevaluate 
what we're doing. And if we're willing to reevaluate and we're open to challenging our own thinking, if we can have that kind of a growth mindset, if you will, I think that everybody has the capacity to make some big changes in terms of what they experience. Um, it's not about ginning yourself up. Um, it's not about subjecting yourself to a level of torture. It's about finding ways to make it easy to do, make the training easy, right? Make the aspect of incorporating training into your life easy, and then you're going to be successful. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes and you know other people who would find this kind of content interesting, please uh, reach out to them. Let them know that we're here. Uh, If you have questions or comments that you'd like to share, you can message us on our Instagram Instagram page at Black Cats Run. If you'd like some consultation for your own training, um, you can also uh, inquire about that there as well. We'll catch you next time.